Sometime later, King Ash Ahasuerus, thank you, began to single out Haman, the son of Hamdatta, the Agagite, for advancement. Eventually, he gave him precedent over all his fellow officers. All the king's servants at the king's gate would kneel and bow down before Haman because the king had so ordered. But Mordecai would neither, would neither kneel nor bow down to him. The king's servants at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why don't you obey the king's order? But after they had confronted him a number of times, without his paying any attention to them, they told Haman, in order to find out whether Mordecai's explanation that he was a Jew would suffice to justify his behavior. Haman was furious when he saw Mordecai was not kneeling and bowing down to him. However, upon learning what people Mordecai belonged to, it seemed to him a waste of time to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Rather, he decided to destroy all of Mordecai's peoples, the Jews, throughout all of Ahasuerus' kingdom. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus, they began throwing purr. That is, they cast lots before Haman every day and every month until the twelfth month, which was the month of Adar. Then Haman said to Ahasuerus, there is a particular people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providences of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people. Moreover, they don't obey the king's laws. It doesn't befit the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, have a decree written for their destruction, and I will hand over 330 tons of silver to officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamada, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people too, to do with as it seems good to you. The king's secretaries were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. They wrote down all of Haman's orders to the king's army's commanders and governors in all the provinces and to all of the officials, to every people, to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language. 
Everything was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by courier to all the royal provinces to destroy, kill, and exterminate all Jews, from young to old, including small children and women, on a specific day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to seize their goods as plunder. A copy of the document to be issued as a decree in every province was to be publicly proclaimed to all peoples so that they would be ready for that day. At the king's orders, the runners went out quickly, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the capital. Then the king and Haman sat down and had a drink together. But the city of Shushan was thrown into confusion. Thank you, Paula, for that lovely reading. Part of the challenge when we look at biblical stories that we've seen and read and played, played out, is being able to put ourselves in, in the stories and using sanctified imagination so that we can see ourselves how we would have acted in similar situation and by the grace of God learn some basic lessons in how to apply. So I want to pause for just a minute and ask for the Lord's favor as we do that. Father God, we thank you for your word. We bless your name and ask simply that you will give us fresh eyes with which to see your word and the discernment to know how to, expl how to understand and apply it. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Part of what's a challenge for us, especially if you're raised in one culture in this country, is to be able to relate to Esther and Mordechai because they are strangers in a different country. And I know we have a number of folks here uh, who are naturalized or who are born in different countries. I certainly was. And that gives you uh, a different sense of perspective on life because you have dual identification. Um, I remember we took, we were part of a tour that uh, went to Israel, uh, my wife's first time in Israel, and um, part of the tour was to cross over into Jordan and uh, take a, a trip through Petra, the, the Red City, which was the uh, city that was carved into the rock. And um, I travel under both the American and Israeli passports. But in Israel, I'm mostly under Israeli passports. So my thought was, you know, I cross over from Israel into Jordan, so I don't need the Israeli passport. I leave it at the hotel, and I come to the crossing, and the Israeli border uh, police looks at me, and they notice the fact that I'm an Israeli citizen. They say to me, 
where is your passport? And I said, I left at the hotel. And uh, they started to laugh. Um, and uh, so here we were stuck in this border, uh, in this, uh, border checkpoint. And these guys had to contact national headquarters in order to get approval in order for me to be able to cross over from Israel uh, a lot into, into Jordan. And there was a, a real, uh, real mind-blower for me because I remember as a child growing up in Israel, um, Israel and Jordan were the state of war. And a number of young people wanted to cross over into Jordan and ended up getting shot. And so for me, it was very, very difficult. I thought, well, American passport, yes. Well, um, it just was a reminder of the dual identity that all of us have to one degree or another. You know, and you remember that Yeshua told us that we are in this world, but not of it. In other words, we have, in a sense, dual citizenship that we f live and function and operate within this world. We have to, you know, we, we get paid, we pay bills, etc., etc. Um, but the more we learn and come to know God, the more we realize that our ultimate citizenship is not down here, but in heaven. In other words, that that governs who we are, governs our, um, our value system, it governs our perspective, and it certainly is the case when we look at Esther and Mordechai. As you recall, if you were here last Shabbat, we, we saw a rags-to-riches kind of a story. Uh, here you have a young girl who is being thrust into a position of influence, um, which was, for those days, the highest place of honor and influence that a woman could have, and that is to be the, the queen. And yet we realize at the same time that life for a Jewish person in the Persian Empire was not totally safe, because among other things, uh, Persia was ruled by someone who had uh, hot temper, who was unpredictable, who was given to wine, and who was easily manipulated, and who had just lost a major war with the Greeks. And as we, re as we see in chapter 1, uh, King Ahasuerus, uh, that was lovely pronunciation, Paula, or in Greek, Xerxes, um, was someone who wasn't always very predictable. And you know what it's like to live under the, the rule of someone who is an unpredictable governor. By the way, as I was driving, um, the uh, pickup truck right in front of me had a bumper sticker that said, uh, Colorado is governed by an idiot. <laughs> and of course, I really didn't have an opportunity to have a discussion with this uh, gentleman. But you understand my point. Um, we live in a culture that isn't always 
friendly or often is hostile to the values that we espouse. We live in a government that isn't always predictable. And uh, so we understand that even though you have Esther uh, being, being uh, raised to a very high position, we know on one level that this is something that doesn't guarantee absolute security. And uh, the truth, folks, is all of us, to one degree or another, want security. We, we want to be able to know that when we get up in the morning, life is not going to be topsy-turvy. It's not going to be mishogi. And the only guarantee that we have is certainly not in people. And um, here, things are lovely at the end of chapter 2, and then all of a sudden, you have the appearance of Darth Vader. Um, except that this Darth Vader isn't ugly looking. He is apparently someone who's fairly attractive in, in terms of personality. So we're told uh, right off the bat that Haman is uh, a descendant from, uh, is an Agagite, meaning he is a, in all likelihood a descendant of King Agag, the last known king of Amalek. And so for a Jewish person who is reading the story of Esther, that right away sends red flares and it says, okay, things are, things are turning and they're not turning favorably because the Jewish people who were in exile at that point, and by the way, we're looking at probably about 65 years since uh, the Jewish people left and were exiled by the Babylonians, they realized that there was severe rivalry between the Amalekites and, and the people of Israel. And if you were to go back to Exodus chapter 17, we have a description of exactly what the Amalekites did. The Amalekites came as the people of Israel were coming out of Egypt, and they attacked them. It doesn't say really much exactly what it is that they did. But in Deuteronomy, 40 years later, Moses gives a retrospective a picture of exactly what happened. And in Deuteronomy 25, we're told that the Amalekites um, came out when Israel was weary and worn out and uh, they cut off all of those who were lagging behind. Now, we know that the Amalekites were um, militaristic kind of people, but think about Military strategy, when you're going after your enemy, do you really want to pursue those who are weak and are lagging behind? That's a waste of energy, isn't it? You want to pursue those who are strong because you, you want to cut down the strength of the enemy so that you can defeat them. So from a military perspective, it makes absolutely no sense. And furthermore, from a spiritual perspective, it also makes no sense. Uh, the Torah is very, very emphatic 
that those who abuse the underdogs are putting themselves under God's most severe judgment. In Exodus chapter 22, we're told that uh, God said to Israel, take care of the orphan, the widows, the aliens, because if you don't and they cry out to me, I will come after you and I'll kill you. And that's fairly emphatic, isn't it? And so what that communicates is simply the fact that God is um, fiercely opposed to those who go after the underdog. Because it, it, as we're told in, in, Ex in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it shows that they have no fear of God. In other words, a basic principle that God holds dear to is that he cares for the underdog. In fact, when you apply that across the board, you know that you can tell a lot about a society, but how it treats its underdogs, how it treats its weakest members, it really indicates what the society is like. So you know that because the Amalekites came, up, came after Israel and attacked the weakest, you know that they were going to experience God's severe judgment, and that's exactly what happens. In Exodus chapter 17, if you would look with me, if you have your Bibles or um, cell phones or other electronic widgets, um, let's just take a moment and look there. Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hand, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat, oh, he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So when you look at that carefully, you notice that there's very little mention about about what takes place militarily. All, all we're told is Joshua uh, selects people, selects um, uh, sets a military together, goes after the Amalekites. doesn't really say anything at all about the strategy. The only thing that is really mentioned about what takes place there is what is taking place spiritually. And this is very odd, because you get the impression that when Moses is able to pray, Israel is winning. When Moses is not able to pray and he gets tired, Israel is losing. Which gives you a very clear sense that there's something taking place in invisible realms that the eye cannot see that really determines what takes place as far as facts on the ground. And when you think about it, that's really the way our reality is. We, we see facts on the ground. We live based on what takes place. However, at some point, what percolates through our mind is we realize that what really takes place is what God does invisibly, which makes all the difference in the world visibly. So that's the second aspect of this uh, battle between Israel and Amalek is that it seems to be spiritually driven rather than militarily driven. And the third aspect here in this uh, conf confrontation with, with Amalek, 
is the kind of instruction God gives to Israel about Amalek. Now this is very, very unusual. It's unique, in fact. God nowhere in Scripture tells Israel to annihilate a group of people. This is very severe. It's very hard for us to get our arms around because we see God as merciful and compassionate, and that's basically who he is. That he bends over backwards to provide opportunity for people to repent. But with Amalek, because of what they did, they have no second chance. And this is pretty scary. In Exodus chapter 17, the Lord says to Moses, write on the scroll of something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. In other words, I will see to it that because of Amalek and what they did, they will not be around. That's severe and harsh, but it, it, it makes it very clear how God viewed the people of Amalek because of what they did to Israel. So, when we see the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, right off the bat, that Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites, we know something is up. We know it's not going to be pretty. And because of the kind of spiritual connection that there is with Amalek, we know that what's going to happen to the people of Israel in Persia several hundred years later is going to be very difficult. And that what's going to be happening between the Jewish people in Persia of that day and the Amalekites represented, symbolized by, by Haman, is going to be very, very difficult. So that's kind of the set, setting of the stage as we prepare to look at what's going on with, with Haman and Mordechai. So here, back to, to uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 1. King Ahasuerus honored Haman, giving him a seat of honor higher than all the other nobles. Now, we have absolutely no clue. I mean, we can speculate, but we have no clue exactly why Ahasuerus honored Haman. He was, he was one of the officials. I suppose we can speculate till the cows come home. But the short version is that um, Ahasuerus, the king, commands all his people, all the officials in the court, to bow down and prostrate themselves when they see Haman. He gives them a, a higher seat above the seat that everybody else has. And remember, in that kind of a mindset, um, the king has the highest seat and, and then the folks who are less important have a lower seat. But this is not only in court, it's also the moment Haman steps out and walks and everybody sees him. They're supposed to do two things. They're supposed to bow and prostrate themselves when they see Haman. And Mordechai sees Haman day after day after day after day and everybody plops down, prostrates themselves, 
and Mordechai is upright. And of course, people are rattled by that because the king was very explicit. You, when, you see more, uh, when you see Haman, you will bow down. And the king's commandment w- was such that if you didn't obey it, um, your face could be separated from your neck without too much problem. It wasn't, it wasn't light stuff. It wasn't, you know, I don't feel like it today. No. The king said it, you do it or else. Mordechai refuses to do that. He doesn't give them any explanation other than to say, Ani Yehudi, I am a Jew. And later on, when, Mor- when Haman comes by, he doesn't stand up, he doesn't show any fear, He's, he is totally unrattled. So, of course, whenever things are somewhat ambiguous in Scripture, that's where everybody rushes in to write books and commentaries and encyclopedias and give all kinds of teachings. You know how it is. Because inquiring minds want to know. See the, the boy back there. Um, so, of course, one theory, one theory is that... Um, that Mordechai is being an obnoxious, arrogant old man. You know, uh, who are you to tell me what to do? I, I don't care if this is, if he is elevated or not, I'm not going to bow down. And um, at, at least for me, that doesn't hold any water. Because remember that in the book of Esther, things are not spelled out. They're given in code. So we don't see God uh, uh, mentioned. We don't see prayer mentioned. We don't see the, the Torah mentioned. We, we, we don't see any of that. So we have to go back to other passages of Scripture that gives us, give us clues of what is taking place. So what's the big deal about Mordechai being a Jew? Well, we need to remember what the origin of the word Jew and why that name was given. In, in Genesis 29, we're told that Leah gave birth to her last son, and she was delighted. And her statement was, this time I will praise the Lord. Odeh is the Hebrew word, Odeh. So she named him Judah, Yehudi. Again, Odeh, Yehudi. Play on words. She saw Judah as, an, as, as God's gift, and she wanted to be very thankful. So there is the, the association between Judah, Yehudi, and praise for God. And you can understand that Mordechai, knowing that he might be killed for refusing to bow down to, to Haman, must have had a darn good reason for not bowing down to Haman. And people say, well, it, uh, Jews did bow down to the king, so it, it wasn't that nobody, uh, you don't bow down to any, any human. Again, it was very specific between Mordechai and Haman. Mordechai knew that there was a price to be paid. And so you want to ask yourself, think about this for a minute. What would you do in Mordechai's situation? 
would you bow down to Haman like everybody else? Bow down and prostrate yourself because that was required? Would you take the kind of steps that Mordechai did? Where, where do we make, how do we make those kind of decisions? And it seems to me that there are a couple of ditches that we want to avoid. One is sometimes we live with folks who are difficult and who are ungodly and who live life according to a set of values that we have a hard time with. And our inclination might be to, to go picking at them. And um, the Word of God tells us not to do that because the people around us are not folks typically who have a commitment to God. And, and, and the Word of God says to us in 1 Corinthians 5, I have written to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, not meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or, or, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. What does that mean? It means that if we had to separate ourselves from people who were who had a uh, godless set of values, we would have to board a spaceship and go to a different planet. Because folks around us have a different set of values. Now, sometimes we have individuals who are morally upright, individuals who don't believe in God or atheists or agnostic. But you know, all of us have lived, have worked in situations where people around us really don't care much for God. I mean, that that's, doesn't take a uh, nuclear physicist to see that this is the trend that is happening more and more and more and more. Read the books, read the papers, watch movies. The um, presence of God in these kinds of things is shrinking rather than getting bigger. So we have to be very discerning when we are around people who have a different set of values just where we park. What is the battle? Where do we draw the battle lines? And for Mordechai, the battle lines were very clear. This guy is an, an Amalekite. I know who they are. They're the enemies of Israel. I will not bow down to him. So is it Mordechai being narcissistic or, or arrogant? I, I don't believe so. Coming back to the other ditch, of course, we can run, run into a problem where we are expected to Go along with whatever is happening in order to get along. You've heard the expression, go along in order to get along. In other words, do whatever people around you are doing. Um, if everybody is telling rank jokes around the uh, water cooler, then yeah, you join in and trash the boss or trash whoever. Or join them for a, a rank version of happy hour, we can come all come up with, uh, we can all fill in the blanks. Short version simply is, there are times when we who are citizens of the kingdom of God have to 
make decisions, make determinations where we draw lines. And sometimes it isn't real simple. And sometimes the lines that we draw will be different than the, than the lines that somebody else draws. But in either case, we live, folks, and please hear me, we, our basic reality that we live under the rule and the governance of God Almighty and that we endeavor to live life based on what he has to say. Mordechai endeavors to do that. And, and we see that what takes place isn't just an ordinary kind of uh, battle between a couple of egos. You know, think about it. If, um, if, if you were having a spat with somebody and it got particularly ugly, you might want to say, well, you know, I'm... I'm uh, going to stick my foot out so that when they come walking, they're going to trip and fall and look ridiculous. Uh, or if you're feeling especially vindictive, you might come and tattle on them to the boss and ask the boss to um, make sure they don't get a, a pay raise or some, some such. Look at Haman's response and you say, this guy is not only sociopathic, and psychotic, this is way, way, way beyond, way over the top. Haman finds out that Mordechai is a Jew, and he doesn't just want to, to have Mordechai put out, put out of the palace or sent on exile. He doesn't even want to have Mordechai killed or Mordechai's family killed. His attitude is, this is so bad, I want every trace of anything having to do with Mordechai to disappear, including million or two of his people who are scattered throughout, throughout this empire. Now, what does that tell you about, about Haman? Besides the fact that he's Meshuggi. What it tells you is that Haman is driven by some kind of a dark power that is way beyond what human thinking is about. Not, not terribly surprising when you see the kind of language that Haman uses. Look with me, if you would, with verses 3 and, and 9. Of this chapter, Haman says to the, to the king, "Does certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from all of those other people and who do not obey the king's law? It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who will carry out the business. Now, let's break it down and see exactly what Haman is saying. First of all, he is dehumanizing the Jewish people. In other words, he is saying there are people who are scattered, dispersed, they're homeless, there really are folks of no consequence. 
they're not worth your bother. Then he demonizes them. He says they're different. Not only are they different, they're disobedient. They choose not to carry out, not to do your demands. Thirdly, another D word, destruction. He wants to see them destroyed because he dehumanizes them, he demonizes them, he wants them destroyed. They should be exterminated. And then he sweetens the pot by offering to throw in a significant amount of money. Now, if you know anything about the Nazis in the 1930s, this is exactly the strategy they took. They dehumanized the Jewish people. They called us untermenschen, subhumans. They demonized us, uh, accusing the Jewish people in Germany of being guilty of everything that took place, all the awful things that took place in Germany. The, the, the confusion, the upheaval, all of that was due to the Jews. And then they wanted to bring about destruction because the Jewish people were such, they needed to be gotten rid of. Europe needed to be Juden rein, free of Jews. And, oh, by the way, this will give us a whole bunch of money that we will get from these Jews. And, oh, by the way, uh, the other villain here is the king. Haman succeeds in uh, schmoozing him, as it were, and kind of twisting his logic. And the king said, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, here, take, take my ring. Completely, uh, do whatever it is you feel like, completely ignoring the fact that he is going to do away with a million or two of his citizens. What does that tell you about Nechash And And yet, and yet, what you see in the book of Esther is the sovereign control of God behind the scenes that at key and critical places, God turns things on a dime through what appear to be nothing more than consequence, uh, uh, circumstantial um, turn of events. Verse 12 of, of chapter 3, Then on the thirteenth day in the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, etc., etc. What is the first month, folks? Nisan. What is the 13th day of Nisan? It's the day before Passover. What is Passover? Passover is the birthday of the Jewish nation. God delivering the people of Israel, bringing them out of, out of Egypt, establishing them as a people. And on that day, you have the edict for their extermination. Don't you find that a little bit bizarre? I certainly do. Because it certainly reminds me that regardless of what Haman does or doesn't do, God will remember the fact that on, on the, d during the month of Nisan, he brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of the clutches of another Haman, and that somehow God will see to it that he will protect his people. The mindset of both Haman 
And the king just blows me away. Here, millions of people are about to die. And what did they do? They said, sit down to drink. What does that tell you about, about who they are, their moral ethics? They have no moral ethics. You know, it reminds me of the story of Franz Stengel, who was a commandant of Treblinka, which was an extermination camp that operated between 1942 and 1943. Estimates give a number of 900,000 Jewish people killed at Treblinka. Jewish people came by train and were immediately hustled, processed, and brought to the gas chambers. So Stengel was there as the trains unloaded their human cargo. He oversaw what took place. And then as soon as that was done, sat down with his family to have a nice lunch. Later, when he was in prison, he was quoted as saying that what he did was not out of hatred of Jewish people. What he said was, that was my profession. I enjoyed it. It fulfilled me. And yes, I was ambitious about it. I won't deny it. My conscience is clear. So here you have someone like that who is actually worse, if you can imagine someone actually being worse, who has, who has it in it for the Jewish people, who has this vicious, um, demonically driven hatred for Jewish people. And so, yeah, when we celebrate Purim, we hear the name of Haman, we boo and, you know, and... and uh, uh, use use the, the, the noisemakers... But we need to remember that Haman is basically um, a symbol of Satan. Because what he wants to do is to destroy and annihilate the Jewish people. We know scripturally that the evil one, Satan, is a destroyer. Revelation chapter 9, we're told that out of the abyss came smoke and out of the smoke came locusts and the locusts have had a king over them who was, whose name in Hebrew is Avadon, which means the destroyer. Haman is doing what is natural to him. He is functioning as an agent of Satan, wanted to kill Jewish people. And so when you look around today, somewhat here in, in, in our in our country where you see references to people who go, who lose their marbles and take a gun and go someplace and blow people. Or you see that in the Middle East um, where young 13-year-olds take a knife and just decide to stab someone to kill them. It clearly is indicative of, of a p puppet master who is pulling the strings behind these people. And oh, by the way, his work is also indicative when we seek to be self-destructive. Yeah, I know, I just crossed the line here. Um, when we do things that are self-destructive, that's clearly indicative of the fact that we are being pulled and manipulated 
by the destroyer himself. So we, we look at, at, at this story, we look at Haman, and we sometimes lose sight of the gravity of what takes place here. And recognize that at, at this point in, in history, the people of Israel's uh, destiny was hanging by a thread. And that Haman comes here with a pair of scissors and wants to cut the thread. And so the story of, of Purim is not just about Esther and, and how she was risen to power and, and was a, a smart cookie and knew how to influence the king. The story of, of Purim is first and foremost about the fact that despite the presence of Amalek, despite the presence of the destroyer, our God reigns. Our God reigns. And so when we are consumed with the struggle of life, we need to go back to the book of Esther and simply remember how close to destruction the people were and yet how God somehow managed to bring them out. Let's take that to heart as we go through our own issues and struggles and challenges. Father God, we thank you for your presence, for your control, for your power, for your mercy. All of this, Lord, how you work in our life, how you work in this world. Thank you, Lord God, for this powerful, powerful story of how you allow things to take place, things that stretch us, that cause us to struggle in our faith, and how, Lord, that you walk with us through this. Thank you, Lord God, that when we go through the fire, it does not consume us. When we go through the waters, they do not overwhelm us. We thank you, Lord God, for your presence and your mercy. We love you, Lord. Thank you for all of these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen.